you read the scripture, we'll be in Nehemiah. We'll begin in chapter 6, just review a little bit here. Chapter 6, verse 15. Context of the book, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king in chapter 1. He was 800 miles away from Jerusalem as he served this foreign king. But his heart was for Jerusalem and the walls that had been reduced to ruin for 160 years. And God put it on his heart to go to the king and ask for permission to go and rebuild the walls. And we read this in 615. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month, Elul, in 52 days. 160 years they couldn't get it done. But the Lord is with him, and they rebuild the wall in 52 days. When all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Then let's go to Nehemiah 9, a very long chapter where the people are gathered and they are being instructed about the history of the nation and their walk with the Lord and how God started their nation. And it's, it's just a long history lesson. And we'll pick it up in 925, where we read this. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing. This is coming out of Egypt after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, taking on the Canaanites, and God just blessed them beyond their wildest dreams. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possessions of houses full of every good things, hewn cisterns. That means thousands of gallons of water that were captured in granite cisterns that somebody had to hewn with a hammer and a chisel, and they didn't have to do it. It was just sitting there waiting for them. And that's a big deal in that part of the world. Vineyards, what a blessing. Olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they, they were filled and grew fat and reveled in your great goodness. Now watch this. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven, and according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hands of their oppressors. And then over to Psalm 78. Remember now, Nehemiah 9 is a very long worship service where they are recounting the faithfulness of God in their history. It, uh, a history lesson, if you will. And now, Psalm 78, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Uh, this would be history. Now watch this which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children. But tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, 
and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. This is history to be passed on to kids. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed the law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're living in strange times. We're living in difficult times, mysterious times. We, we are flummoxed. We are saddened. We are grieved by what we see going on around us. It's almost beyond words. It's hard to express what has occurred, what has happened, the suffering, the dashed dreams, the lost hopes, the lies, the deceptions, the backroom deals, And somebody, not just somebody, but a lot of people are paying with their lives. They have been betrayed, and where can they go? You said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will counsel you with my eye upon you, you said in Psalm 32. Uh, you're near to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. We pray for those who are suffering. We pray that they might call on the name of Jesus. We thank you that there is a revival among people in the Middle East. People who have been taught another way are coming to Jesus in droves. This is a remarkable thing, and we thank you for it. This is hard for us to fathom. It's hard for us to understand. But we pray that your will would be done. We know that you use prosperity, and we know that you use great suffering. And we have experienced in our own lives that the greatest disappointments, the greatest sufferings all often in our lifetimes, sometimes after a few years, we'll see you turn them for good. We leave timing to you, but we pray, Lord, that they would sense your presence, that the believers would know that you are with them. Bring scripture to their mind and comforts them. Help them to fight off fear and be courageous. And by their character and by their testimony, testify with their lives to their oppressors. For their oppressors need to come to know Jesus. Thank you for our limited adversities. We have them, but not like those folks. Help us not to complain. Help us to be grateful. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Let us not forget that. We ask in your great name. Amen. Os Guinness is a tremendous Christian writer, philosopher, Bible teacher. Os is probably now 78, 79. He keeps coming out with significant books about every 18 months. I mean significant.
interesting man is descended descended from the uh, Guinness brewing, brewing family. The history of that family is that there were three strains. The, those who stayed with the brewing, the Guinness beer, those who became bankers, and then there's a history of missionaries in that family. And his family, uh, he was raised in China, and at the age of seven, the communists took over. And what we're seeing, the chaos in Afghanistan, he and his family experienced in China. His father was publicly humiliated along with other missionaries. Missionaries were killed, tortured. His father uh, did not survive. His two brothers died of starvation. He escaped with his mother. So he is not unfamiliar with what happens when chaos rules and reigns in a situation. Um, very wise man, knows the scriptures. He, um, in his latest book, he talks about Thomas Jefferson. And I'm going to read this section to you in just a minute. Let's switch gears and talk football. <laughs> it was kind of an abrupt transition, was it not? <clears throat> High school football normally played on Friday nights. If you play a game on Friday night, something's going to happen at practice on Monday. And what's going to happen is you're going to watch the film of the game. Now, now they watch tape. When I played, they watch film. But it's the same thing. And they're going to break down the game and what happened. And if the defense broke down on their coverage and the other team scored, the coach is going to show the play, and then he's going to say, OK, um, play it back. Play it back. We're going to play back just a little bit what we did last Sunday, just to keep the context going, because we're in the book of Nehemiah. And we're not covering the whole book, but we're getting in a helicopter, and we're kind of hovering over Nehemiah. And we are taking some aerial photographs of the book of Nehemiah. Second Chronicles 12.32, the men of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. What that means is they understood the times. They they diagnosed the times. They could discern the times biblically, not just see the events, but see through the lens of God's wisdom, things that other people couldn't see. They gave a, when they understood the times, there was a, a diagnosis, there was a spiritual diagnosis. They understood the times, but then it goes on and says, and they knew what Israel should do. That means they not only had a diagnosis, but they had a prescription. They knew what they should do. You go to the doctor, you get your physical, they go over your blood work. Uh, I'm concerned about this. In fact, let's get some more tests, or I'm going to have you, you write your prescription. What you need to do is go take that prescription, and I'll see you in two months, whatever. This is what's going on. This is what we did last Sunday. We, we kind of 
did the role of the men of Issachar. What is going on in our times? Well, a lot of stuff is going on in our times, things that we have never seen before, things we never thought we'd see, and they just keep coming. They just keep coming. They just keep coming. It used to be that maybe, maybe once a month you might say, I've never seen anything like this. Now, how many times in a day do you say, I've never seen anything like this. This is crazy. This is insane. And we talked about moral insanity and spiritual insanity. And if you look at our times, there's a lot of moral and spiritual insanity. We have a lot of leaders who, ins who are insane morally and spiritually. There are a lot of people in this country who are insane morally and spiritually, and we went to Romans 1 because Romans 1 tells us how if you continue to suppress the truth about God that you know to be true, and you ignore it, and you deny his existence, and you go your own way, and you harden your own heart, he will let you go the way that you want to go, and there are three stages of giving over First one, sexually. The second one is into homosexuality. The third one is he gives you over to a reprobate mind, which is a mind that really cannot reason. And the symptom, the primary symptom of a morally insane mind is the passage in Isaiah 5 that says, Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Now, that's what's going on around us. As a culture, as a government, as in education, they are calling evil good. They're calling good evil. And if you don't get on board, they're coming after you. Now, this is how quickly things have changed. This isn't the first time we've seen leaders who are morally and spiritually insane. So Os Guinness, in his book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, he writes these words. Thomas Jefferson, America's third president and author of the Declaration of Independence, is often attacked for his moral hypocrisy. At the very time that he wrote the famous words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. He was attended by two slaves in Philadelphia, and he owned 60 slaves at home in Monticello, and 600 slaves over the course of his lifetime. He also turned away William Wilberforce's plea to form a concert of benevolence between Britain and America to lead the world in getting rid of slavery. He wasn't interested in that, although he had just written those words in the Declaration of Independence. But surprisingly, for such a giant of the mind, Jefferson also displayed an intellectual inconsistency to match his hypocrisy. He referred to the slaves in a letter, nothing is more certainly written in the book of fate than that these people shall be free. You know, it was interesting about Jefferson. Jefferson published his own Bible. He was pretty taken with himself. He, he published his own Bible. He edited the Bible. He had it printed and 
sent copies to every member of Congress. Uh, he took out any reference to the Trinity. He took out any reference to the supernatural. He ended the Gospel of John with the death of Jesus. He did not include the resurrection. Uh, that's insane. He stood over the Word of God. He thought he was superior to the Word. Here, let me fix this Bible. What's interesting to me is, in much more subtle ways, I find professing Christians doing the same thing. There is a suspicion among professing Christians, not, not all, but I'm saying I see it more and more, uh, a suspicion of the truthfulness of the Word of God. They, uh, they tend to edit their own Bible. They, they may not publish it, and they're, they're very quiet. They know that if they're in an evangelical church, that might, may not be acceptable, and they don't always reveal it, but it's going on inside of them, and sometimes it comes out. They have a real problem with the inerrancy of the Bible. I, I have met Christians. I've had conversations with, with Christians that I've known for a long time, and I know they have concerns, and there, there are legitimate questions about the Word of God, and we answer them with textual criticism and things like that. Nothing wrong with, we, we are to search through scriptures. There's no doubt about it. But there is, um, over the years, they move farther and farther away from the scriptures, and they change their position that they once held, and they are taking positions that are absolutely counter to the Word of God especially on issues of sexuality. It's, it's going on everywhere. I'm sure you've run into it. And they, they have a tremendous amount of trust in human authorities. Their trust in human authorities, from my mind and from my conversation, is going up. Their trust in the authority of the Scriptures and Jesus Christ is going down. And at times I wonder, who is your personal Lord and Savior? And that's a good question for all of us to ask. Because there is a very subtle temptation to stand over the Word of God, as Jefferson did. The Scripture declares it's truth. Thy word is truth. The sum of thy word is truth. Everyone has an authority. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The fact of the matter is, is when we reject his authority, we lose his wisdom. There are two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom of man, and there's the wisdom of God. And the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians contrast the wisdom of man with the wisdom of God. Jefferson was all about the wisdom of man. When you see leaders who are morally and spiritually insane, first of all, whenever you have leaders that are contrary to the word of God and leaders who call evil good and they call good evil, what you're going to have is you're going to have chaos because they have no moral compass except their own wisdom. I was doing some... Uh, 
reading this week on World War II and Churchill and the events of those times, England's always had a uh, difficult relationship with Ireland. And back in the 1800s, Irish leader Daniel O'Connor once said of the British attorney Lord Manners, he said this, that's the most sensible looking man talking nonsense that I ever saw. What a great line. That's the most sensible looking man. I mean, he has, he has ethos. Before even, certain people, you know, you get an impression of them before they even open their mouth. They look like they know what they're talking about. Some people just look like leaders. They just look like they know what they're doing. They look sensible. They look respectable. That's the most sensible man talking nonsense that I've ever seen. Uh, we're surrounded by those. Sensible man, man, men, sensible women, they look sensible. Let's, let's, let's get it right. They look sensible, but they're morally and spiritually insane. And wherever they go and wherever they influence, there is chaos and the lives of people are utterly destroyed. They have no problem with slaughtering babies in the womb. No problem. None. Well, the, why would you then value human life in another country? People are in grave peril. Why would you not do everything you can do to help them? Because you've got a very cheap view of human life because you're running not on the wisdom of God, but on the wisdom of man. And there's chaos. Churchill, the man who preceded him as prime minister, was Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain was a weak leader. Neville Chamberlain was an appeaser. He wanted peace with Hitler. If you're morally sane, you understand you can't make peace with evil. But he was determined, and in 1937, after meeting with Hitler, he came back with the Munich Agreement. It was an agreement for peace. Hitler said yes. Now, he had to give him part of Czechoslovakia and destroy the lives of how many people? But he was willing to do it to get peace, and he was absolutely full of himself and thrilled with himself. And then along came Winston Churchill. And Churchill said, sir, you were given a choice. You were given a choice between war and dishonor. You have chosen dishonor, and you will have war. Somehow that rings true to me right now. Does it not? Yes, it does. Churchill also said, this is one of those cases in which the imagination is baffled by the facts. I would submit to you that applies perfectly to where we are right now. We can hardly believe. We can't even imagine this is going on. We can't even imagine this is happening. Can we? David Wells, the, um, the excellent biblical theologian, 
made a statement about worldliness. I'll give it to you, and then I'm going to go back and apply it to moral and spiritual insanity. Here's what he said. Worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. That's pretty good. Now let's take moral insanity and apply the same definition. Moral insanity, spiritual insanity, is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Isaiah 5. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Just where we are right now. Moral and spiritual insanity is the result of sin that comes from the heart. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 15. Chapter 15, verse 18. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus is talking about sin. Notice that Jesus does not buy into the teaching that men are basically good. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? We're born with sin natures. We are born, born opposed to God. We are born against God. Psalm 14. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good. God has looked over the sons of men. There is no one who seeks him. There is no one who does good because we're all sinners. Doesn't mean you can't help an older lady across the crosswalk. That's a good thing. Of course you can do that. It's talking about good that would cover sin. We can't do that. Jesus is talking about where sin comes from. A number of years ago, I was doing a conference, and once I got there, I found out it was young pastors, and they were part of the emerging church movement. And the emerging church movement was a movement about 20 years ago. And they were very hip, and they were very cool, and they wanted to reach people, and they were all about church growth. They wanted their churches to grow. And so they were big on entertainment. They would have, uh, when they stand and do worship music, they'd have smoke machines, and they'd have guys in motorcycles jumping over the pot. I don't know what they were doing. It was, it was nuts. It was insane. Just, it was a show. It was like going to Vegas. After I spoke to these young pastors, several of them came up and said, hey, uh, you got time to get coffee? And I said, sure, that'd be great. And so I sat down with them and said, yeah, you know, we're doing, and I figured out these are emerging church guys. I didn't know that. And they were nice guys. I enjoyed talking with them. And, man, yeah, that was really, man, that was awesome. And he said, oh, well, good. You spoke a long time. Oh, well, thanks. I mean, would you speak an hour? Yeah. Man, you used a lot of verses. I said, yeah, well, there's a lot of verses in there. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's cool, man. It was good. Do you, do you always speak like that? And I said, well, I just, I mean, yeah. I mean, I just teach the Bible. I, well, now, your pastor? He said, yeah. I said, well, so what do you do? He said, oh, yeah. I said, how long do you preach? He said, you know, 15, 20 minutes. I said, you need to double that. And they were all shocked. 
He said, double it. I said, yeah. I said, you need to study to show thyself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You got to work really hard at your preaching and your teaching. You just can't get up there and tell stories. You just can't get up there and tell jokes. You, you, you got to give them the word of God. And the reason you got to give them the word of God, you know John 8, don't you, man? 831, 32, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you were truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's cool, man. That's good. I said, it is good. Because you got these people coming and what do they need? They need truth. Because they got all kinds of stuff, don't they? He said, yeah. And, he, and, and you know, we're talking and I'm, I'm pulling this out of my memory, but yeah, they got addictions and all. Yeah, they got sin. It's sin. And we're weak and we're all broken. Yeah. So what do they need? They need truth. They need to be set free, right? Yeah. So you give them the word of God. But man, you got to dig and you got to teach. And you got to pray over it. And you cut back some stuff, you know. And make sure everybody's got a Bible. And, and you lead by your life in your interaction with the Bible. You're a private worshiper. You see? You got to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You see? It's got to be inside. They were good guys and they were listening. And we were having a good time. They were a little uncomfortable talking about sin. Why is that? Because it's the age in which we're living. And they actually came out and told me, yeah, well, we, we want our church to grow. And as I recall, one of the guys mentioned, you know, if you teach the Bible like that, I mean, some people aren't going to like it. I said, I'll tell you what, a lot of people aren't going to like it. But your job is not to be liked. Your job is to tell the truth. Well, it's going to be hard to grow a church. I said, your job is not to grow a church. Well, we, we want to see, your job is not to get more people. Your job is to declare the word of God. Your job is to declare what Jesus has said throughout the book, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And the word will change them. For some, as 2 Corinthians says, it'll be a fragrance of life hearing the gospel. It'll be a fragrance that leads to life. To others, it'll be a fragrance that leads to death because they don't want anything to do with it. But all you have to do is show up and deliver the message. That's your job. And you'll see the Spirit of God take the Word of God, and you'll see people's lives begin to change. Doesn't matter how good a preacher you are or aren't, you just give the Word of God and unleash it. Spurgeon said, the Bible's like a lion. You just unchain it and let it go. So Nehemiah was a sane and godly leader. A sane and godly leader. He was sane because he knew the Lord and he knew the Word. To be a sane leader, you have to know the Word of God. And you want to know the Word of God because it's how you get to know the Lord. The, the, word, um, the word of God, Deuteronomy says, is not an idle word for you, it is your life. Jesus said, 
I believe in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You can't live without the Bible spiritually. You can't. You cannot make it. It has your B, C, D, E, chromium, potassium, selenium. It's got your amino acids, spiritually speaking. You can't live without it. If you don't have the Bible, you're going to become malnourished. How can you stand against the enemy? How can you stand against the schemes of the, de of the devil if you're not in the Word of God? You have to be in Scripture. The only way to see a difference in your life, spiritually speaking, three years from now, as opposed to three years ago, is your time in the Word of God and the application of the Word of God in your life. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them shall be like a man who built his house on the rock and the storms came and the winds blew and his house survived. But those who hear these words of mine and do not do them shall be like the man who built his house on the sand and the storms came and the winds blew and great was his loss. So you've got to have a foundation of the word of God in your life. That's how, and when you do that, what happens is you become sane, more and more sane. Nehemiah was a sane and godly leader, and he did two things that we saw in Nehemiah 7. Number one, he appointed other sane and godly leaders who did sane and godly things like funding a police force to protect the citizens. Because in Romans 13, it says the primary function of government is to restrain evil. Isn't that refreshing? So that's what sane and godly leaders do. Secondly, he appointed Ezra the priest to teach God's word to all, especially the men, because men are the heads of their homes. And men are called by God to instruct their children in Deuteronomy 6, and so are grandfathers. Last week, uh, I referred to 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, where the thing, Paul said, the things you've seen in me, these in turn instruct these to other faithful men. There's a process where older men are to teach younger men, and they are to, younger men are to look at your life, and they are to, they are to imitate your sanity and your godliness, not that you're perfect, but they see a maturity, they see a gravitas. Gravitas comes from Titus 2.2, that the older men are to be sober, they are to be grave, or they are to be dignified. It means they have a gravity, they have a weight, and as we said last week, there, is an, there, there are people in your sphere of influence, and when there is a gravitas, when there is a weight, there is a spiritual authority that comes out of your life. They know you stand with Christ and for Christ, and you have convictions, and they know you're not insane spiritually. And they watch you, and then they emulate you. And what that is, is that there is a gravitational pull in the life of an older man who loves the Lord, loves the Word, loves his wife, loves his family, is faithful in relationships, is faithful in his work, is faith he has integrity. All the pieces of his life match up. What he says is what he does. 
He doesn't say one thing and do another. There, there is a congruency. There is a structural integrity in his life. He still struggles with sin, but he's, he's following Christ. We love men like that. They're not toxic. They're godly and they're sane. <laughs> Who would not want a man like that in your life? And those are the kind of men that we are to become as we follow the Lord Jesus. Third thing that Nehemiah did, and this goes over to Nehemiah 9. In Nehemiah 9, they are worshiping the Lord. They're confessing their sin. This is a very long chapter. But if we just glance over it, he is, uh, here's what I want you to get. He is teaching history accurately. And this is a big deal. He's teaching history accurately. He, he says in 6, You alone are the Lord, you have made the heavens. That's history. The earth and all that is in it. That's history. The seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them. As the heavenly host bows before you, you are the Lord God. Who chose Abraham. That's where the, the first Jew. All the Jews come from Abraham. All the Palestinian people come from Abraham because he didn't trust God for the promise and thought his wife needed help. And so he went into the handmaiden instead of his wife because she was too. But that's another story. But then when he waited for the promise, when he was 100 and she was 90, there's a baby boy delivered. See, this is history. And then if you look at verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. This is the whole, they're in Egypt, they're slaves. It's the Red Sea story. And then he led them by a pillar of cloud, fire by night. That's verse 12. That was in the wilderness. Verse 15, you provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. Um, look at verse 21. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. You provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. That's an amazing thing. Two million people. No Costco's. <laughs> he took care of them. See, that's history. And what did Psalm 78 say? You tell the history to your kids so that they can tell it to their kids, so that they can tell it to their kids. This stuff is not a myth. This stuff is real. When God delivers, tell them about it. Because down the road, 30, 40 years, they're going to be in a similar situation, and they may remember, may remember oh, I remember my mom, my mom and dad were there, and the Lord came through for them. That's why you tell them history. But you tell it to them accurately. I'm driving two of my grandsons to the trampoline park a couple weeks ago. And we're going to go down there and have a good time, and I'm going to watch them jump, and I'm going to sit in the chair and encourage them because I don't want to go to the chiropractor later. And so we're heading down there, and they're all pumped. and They love me to tell them stories, and I'm driving down there, and Papa, say, hey, Papa, yeah, is it really true that Uncle Josh shot my dad in the back with a BB gun? I said, yeah, that's true. Wow, that is a true, my dad told me about that. I said, yeah, he did. He didn't mean to, but he shot him in the back with a BB gun. How old was Uncle Josh? Oh, gosh, I don't know, 35? <laughs> I didn't say that because he wasn't 35, so you've got to teach history accurately. I said, well, I don't know. What was he, 10, 11? You know, we lived out in the country or out in the pasture. 
Nobody around. I showed him how to, I didn't give him 22s, but you could have BB guns. And Josh, he felt so bad. Did he get in trouble? I said, well, I took it, yeah, I took it away. Hey, Dad, is it really true that they drove that old pickup into the creek? I said, well, yeah, sort of. Who, who was driving? Well, Uncle Josh was driving. How old was he? Twelve? Your, your dad let him drive. And I didn't know what was going on. And they didn't really go into the creek, but Josh hit the accelerator instead of the brake and hit a berm, and they flew, and they landed on a rock pile, and they were tilting into the creek when we got them out. That's called history. And they love it. It's a different kind of history. History is fascinating. Is it not? Sure it is. There's a massive amount of history in the Bible. And it's, history is told accurately. Karl Marx did not teach history accurately. And as a result... Millions upon millions upon millions of people have been tortured and murdered because he did not teach it accurately, and he developed a system that is ungodly, and he developed a system that, believe it or not, is starting to creep into evangelical churches and Bible-teaching churches. Not full-blown Marxism. It's called cultural Marxism or critical race theory or wokeism. Um, if you have your copy of the Communist Manifesto with you, <laughs> turn with me to page one. Perhaps you left it on the kitchen counter this morning. This is how the Communist Manifesto starts. The history of all here there too existing society is the history of class struggles. That's a lie. That's not true. You want the truth about history? Here's the truth about history. Creation. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. The fall. The garden. The man and the woman disobeyed. Sin comes into the world. Restoration. Jesus comes, is born of a virgin, goes to the cross, takes our sin upon him and pays it in full. That's redemption. And then restoration. Jesus is coming again. There'll be a new heaven. There'll be a new earth. There'll be a new Jerusalem. And it will be perfect forever. And when you've been there 10 billion years, you're just getting started. That's the story. But Marx goes on and he says, in a word, it's oppressor and oppressed stood in constant opposition to one another. That's not true. You know how many people believe this? You know how many people are buying into it right now? It's, it's absolutely astonishing. Uh, John Stone Street, who is head of Chuck Colson's ministry now that Chuck is with the Lord, has written an article called Why Wokeness is a Christian Heresy. He writes these words. It's accurate to call wokeness a Christian heresy or, a Christ or, or critical race theory. And I'm going to do this pretty quickly. Heresy comes from the Greek verb 
harain, which means to choose. The idea is heresy is the result of choosing one thing that is true and then running with it until it distorts everything else. Wokeness, a way of seeing the world built on critical theory, fastens onto the Christian idea that oppression is evil but makes it the sole significant fact about humanity and society while rejecting so much else that Christian teaches, like original sin, forgiveness, and salvation. It should not be difficult to see why the various expressions of critical theory and woke rhetoric resonates with so many Christians. The appeal is rooted in legitimate biblical concerns about the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, and the potential misuse of power. However, it fails on many other levels. It, it fails, critical theory does, it misunderstands who we are by assuming that the only relevant fact about us is where we fit within the various categories of oppression. I'll show this to you in just a minute. We are the group we belong to, which serves social role as either oppressor or oppressed. You're either an oppressor or you're the oppressed. That's it, period. That's Marxism. As such, this theory rejects any universals that unite humanity, including the image of God. This is a big deal. This is serious stuff. It also deals with the understanding of sin or what's wrong with the human condition. And they make the human condition, what's wrong with it, it's limited to oppression. In this view, oppressors are guilty and the oppressed are innocent. The universality of human guilt before God, that we are all broken and sinful, that we are all in need of forgiveness and redemption, is replaced by a moral reckoning that is a dependent on which group we belong to. This is not biblical, yet this is being taught in churches that hold to the word of God along racial lines. There are seminars that are being taught on being more sensitive. And listen, when we talk about racism, when we talk about any sin, it's not about the color of your skin. It's about the condition of your heart. Is that not what Matthew 15? Is that not what Jesus said? Or are you going to edit Jesus? Are you going to set Jesus straight? You don't want to do that. Although some, in their hubris, are doing exactly that. So we've got these seminars going on in Christian churches for white people. Because white people are the oppressors. They, uh, if you're white, you're an oppressor. This is being taught. This is not biblical. This is uh, diabolical. Owen Strahan has written a book called Christianity and Wokeness. It's excellent. S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N, great theologian. He says, this worldview was rooted in atheism, godlessness. Marx did not only shake his fist at the divine, he hated the world God had made. He despised what theologians called creation order. He wanted to wipe out every trace of divine making from the earth. Karl Marx was a Jew, and he hated Jews, and he hated God. 
He was descended from a long line of rabbis. But he hated the Old Testament. He hated the God of the Old Testament. He goes on and says this, most importantly, because our present institutions derive their delegated authority from God, these institutions, individualism, family, church, and state, must first be deconstructed and stripped of their authority in order to fully eliminate God from society. In fact, for Marx, deliverance from the evils of capitalism cannot occur until all traces of God are removed in the world. Now, how can this be creeping into evangelical churches? Here's how. He writes, evangelicals are hearing that they are white supremacists by nature. Christians are being called to repent for their whiteness and reject their inherent white fragility. Christians are told that they are complicit in the racist sins of their forebears. Christians are encouraged to align with Black Lives Matter, an organization with polar opposite worldview on matters of the natural family, the sexes, and the human sexuality. Last paragraph. In combating racial inequality, whites, as the main creators and benefactors of the racialized society, must repent of their personal, historical, and social sins. This is because if historical and social sins are not confessed and overcome, they are passed on to future generations, perpetuating, perpetuating the racialized system and perpetuating sin. And then he says, this is a curious argument. And it is. It communicates a generational understanding of sin that is foreign to the New Testament. Nowhere is any person asked by Christ or his apostles to repent of a sin that a family member committed. Nowhere is anyone rendered guilty for crimes of previous generations. So in churches, Bible churches, you got white people standing up and they are confessing their sins of racism, even if they're not aware that they have them and they are confessing the sins of their ancestors. And this is being taught as a good thing. Ezekiel 18. Why, why am I bringing this up? Well, give me a minute as we close. In Ezekiel 18, this is why we've got to know the Word of God. Ezekiel 18.20, the person who sins will die. Listen to this. The, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So if your great-great-grandfather was a slaveholder, his sin is not on you. If your son turns out to be a mass murderer, God does not hold you accountable for the sins of your son. Sin is not generational, yet we are told in this new doctrine that is creeping in the churches that just by your whiteness, you're the oppressor and they're the victim. That's insane. But it's being taught. See to it. 2 to Colossians, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule of authority. Look at 1.16. 
For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. Notice 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Watch this. Through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. The answer is not philosophy or critical race or this or this. The answer is Christ. We preach Christ. Christ, you're interested in justice? This thing out there is called social justice. Social justice is not biblical justice. Christ is justice. He is the truth. He is holy. He understands the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And when he judges, he will judge it perfectly and he's also a redeemer, and our sins can be forgiven in this new approach. You cannot be forgiven because God has been removed out of the question. You know what? You know what? You know what Marx did? Ne Nehemiah 9 actually talks about the oppressed and the oppressor. And it mentions God. But what Marx did was that he kept oppressed an oppressor and he removed God because he hated God and he replaced God, guess what, with the state. That's what this is all about. You shall have no other gods before you. That's the word of God. We believe it. We're going to stand on it and we're going to trust in him. Our Father, we thank you for your word and the truth of your word. Give us courage, give us boldness, give us wisdom. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.